podcast this week we are at the gwct game fair at schoon palace it was a great weekend i was only there well both of us were only there on the friday saturday and the friday it was pretty muddy it was but that was due to the previous day of setting up they were incredibly lucky because like the days before it was chucking it with rain yeah no it was it was good I enjoyed myself. Like I always, I always do. do. It's it's one of my favorite game fairs of the year, and it's right on our back door, which is great. And we meet lots of people that we know, which is uh, just makes it even better. What, what's amazing is actually when you speak to people that do a lot of the shows, they all say it's their favorite as well. It is. Yeah. And we have, well, I have one more game fair left for the year. Uh, I'm going to be at the game fair at Hatfield House, twenty uh, eighth to the thirtieth of this month. Um, we are giving two tickets away for that game for on our social media so check instagram have you got tickets for yourself uh i do you know what actually <laughs> charlie did uh, email me and say do you need tickets uh, so hopefully they're coming to the house uh, otherwise i might have to steal the ones we've been given yeah. i will get i will get tickets i'm sure they're going to let me in since they did actually ask me to come and speak on the they've got like this theater there where they're doing a chat show type thing so if you're going to be at the game fair go and wherever that is go and find it uh, I'm going to be on, on um, two of the days. One, talking about our series. One of the days, I'm going to sit down, um, talk show. The host is going to be Charlie Jacoby, who we've had on this show before. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about the Into the Wilderness series. And then the, the following day, I'm on a panel and talking about uh, the Scottish government and policies that they're bringing in, which might affect um, hunting and, uh, and fishing and, and shooting sports in this country. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to that, actually. Yeah, I won't be there. No, you're going to be partying at a music festival. I will be. You've got to do it sometimes. I've got a few news items, which I'm going to go through. I didn't know about these. Why don't you go? Um, just a couple of very short ones. We're actually, we do need to do a news podcast because oh, yeah, there's a ton of news yeah. that's happened since maybe, we've done Maybe, should we do I one think this month? We are, or well, we were supposed to be away right now, but things have shifted. So I think probably starting next week, we're going to yeah, endeavor okay, to record we'll one. So how about this? For our listeners, we'll put out a podcast in between this one and the next one. Yeah, so in a week's time. Yeah. Uh, the first thing is right now, uh, although they've had a, a couple of hiccups with what they're trying to do, but I'm sure it's going to come off and get back up and running again. At the Sangar Wildlife Reserve in Zimbabwe, uh, there is a massive translocation of game going on right now, or just about to start going on, where they're moving roughly speaking about 8,000 head of game from this reserve, which is actually a series of private massive farms uh, to a reserve in Mozambique and they're donating this game and there's a great story here is that the reason that they have such great numbers of game and excess beyond what the land can actually take is that they run that that reserve or the, the series of farms uh, for hunting for trophy hunting and it's been so successful that they have this overpopulation. So instead of culling it just for meat, which is what happens across all of Africa, uh, they've decided that they're going to donate donate these, give the, this game away to a reserve that doesn't have enough game over in Mozambique. And it's a great example of trophy hunting working for the greater uh, benefit of species. Uh, we might very well uh, be there at some point to cover that story. 
Um, so that's happening right now. Um, I have just come in one or two hours ago from being interviewed for STV News, which is the local news up in uh, in our area, although it covers all of Scotland, uh, on Pacific Salmon, uh, which is uh, not the same as our Atlantic Salmon, which is what we're used to finding in our rivers in, in Scotland and across the UK. They are an invasive species, which I believe originally got brought in from America into Russia, found their way into Norway, and then found their way across the North Sea into our rivers. Um, the BBC managed to report that the grizzly bear's food is in Scotland. Yes, well, they did. Well done, BBC. <laughs> um, but hopefully when this report goes out either to tonight or tomorrow, uh, it's actually a, a good friend of mine who's running the news story. Uh, there'll be a little bit more meat on the bone than the grizzly bear's food. This is more for our Scottish listeners because yeah. I don't think you can get STV outside of Scotland. No, I don't think you can, but we do have a lot of Scottish listeners, so yeah, check it out on, on STV. Uh, I'm going to be a very short interview. And they're gonna. They've actually. They're also interviewing on that same uh, news piece, um, Chris from the Nest system. I tell you what, it will. It on. will be on their Facebook page because they put snippets of their top headlines on their Facebook page. So for everyone else around the globe that listens to the show, you can go on STV News yes, Facebook and page, and they normally have the little news snippets, and you can see Byron being interviewed for that. And the very last thing is, you will have heard uh, one of the great guest that was on two weeks ago, uh, we had lots of great guests on in that sort of series of interviews from the CIC, uh, was Shane Mahoney. We mentioned him at the start. He, he came in about an hour through. If you have not listened to that, go back. And even if you just listened to it for his piece, go back and listen to it. But there's a lot of great speakers on there. He is. Uh, he started something called the Wild Harvest N Initiative a few years ago now. Uh, and long story short of it is he's trying to put a value on all of the wild game across America and Canada that comes into households every year and work out what would we do if we didn't have this protein available from wild sources, which is being harvested primarily by hunters. It's something that would be fantastic to do here in Europe. It's supported by a huge number of organizations and companies, and I would love to be able to um, set up something like that in the UK and Europe. And I think it's something we need to think about. But go and check him out, Conservation Visions, on uh, on the web if you look at conservation visions or shane mahoney on the podcast you'll be able to see him from two weeks ago and also his own um sort of series of lectures that he has on the podcast app if you didn't see on the podcast facebook page i put up a picture today that was fairly funny and it was a picture of a, a board in what looked like a shopping center and it was an animal rights group uh and it was about animal testing don't, don't get me wrong i'm animal testing in some areas is disgusting and uh, but you need to know the facts about everything and it was a board and there must have been about 300 brands that they were claiming was doing animal testing uh, and one of the brands they put up there was SoundCloud now if you don't know what SoundCloud is we use SoundCloud for this podcast to host our uh, show on it it is an online platform for audio so I don't know what they're doing to test animals with listen to the audio. I, I'm not entirely sure. But maybe I, they're testing our podcast. Maybe they're testing. Animals. I mean, my dog listens to the podcast <laughs> now and then. Uh, but it, we, I shared it more for the fact of you can't always take everything from for face value because mm. that's obviously they've got their agenda and they've just picked out 200 brands. And plonked them on a screen. Plonked them on a screen and said, these people all animal test. Yeah. Hate them. Hate them. Yeah. Mm. 
It's a bit like the, I mean, I think we've talked about this before. And the reason why it's in my mind is because Daryl was just filming sheep shearing a week ago for a film that we're going to be putting out uh, very soon about Tweed. And there was that picture of um, with Petter with the bearded man holding the baby yeah. lamb that was dripping with blood. What did you see when you were shearing sheep, Daryl? It was a very quick process. Um, the sh- they didn't use a chainsaw to shear it, so uh, the sheep came out looking like they'd been shaved. In like, fact, cleaner. Than yeah, they were, they looked happy. Well, you know, bounced around a little bit and ran away. That was it. There, were, there was no adverse effect to it whatsoever. They were. Uh, do you know? There's actually. I don't know if it's today or if it's this week, but there's a guy. A Kiwi guy down in England trying to break the world record. I thought he was an English guy. He's just done. Was he an English guy? Yeah. He, did he break it? He broke it. Yeah, two thousand sheep in fifty hours or something like that. He it had was, to do one left. every forty-five seconds. <laughs> it was ridiculous. ridiculous. Yeah. Um, anyway, no sheep were harmed in the the breaking of that record. Oh, congratulations! I don't know your name, but congratulations for breaking the record. Yeah, that is some hell of a. Because I watched the guys doing it when I was filming the sheep shearing, and it is physical, physical work. He must have been knackered. He must have been knackered. I'm, uh, yeah. Um, we have uh, our wilderness hunts, which we talk about every so often on the podcast. Now, the one that we have up in November is fully booked. It was fully booked basically as soon as we released the dates again. Uh, the in the January dates are the 11th to the 13th, 2018. Uh, we have two spaces of the four spaces available already booked. So, if you are interested in that, you need to get in contact pretty soon because I, I, it's not going to take long and we haven't really pushed it or it, it's really been people from last year who who couldn't get on so i would get onto that check out our website thepacebrothers.com hit the wilderness hunts tab and you can read all about it see the pictures from last year see all the pricing see what the story is and if you have any questions shoot us an email and we'll give you a call back uh if you look at our websites you'll notice that they are slowly being updated with uh looking very pretty trying to make them a bit slicker yeah uh the pacebrothers.com uh that has all the stuff that me and byron get up to and then if you go to paceproductionsuk.com was it just paceproductions.com it's paceproductionsuk.com i didn't even know our own website that is our production company's website and we shall talk about some services in a minute actually that we're going to yeah, well, we can talk about it now, actually. We can talk about it now. Uh, so we're going to have very limited spaces for shoot day photography this year. I say limited because we're extraordinarily busy and uh, we like to keep things We've got a certain limited. level, uh, limited, yeah. cause just so that we can keep yeah. the level high. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this podcast have probably seen some of our filming. That's kind of where we started. But if you haven't um, seen our Instagram account... That's a lot of our photographies on there. Yeah. And uh, if you want us to come and do shoot day photography, this is not a free service. I'm not offering this for free. <laughs> uh, then please get in contact with us. Yeah. I have to say, actually, it doesn't even have to be shoot day photography. No, it, it could, in fact, be a stalking day. Yeah, it could be anything. Um, it could be anything. The point is, it's something that we are now doing, whereas we've always done our photography basically for ourselves. Uh, and the, our, our film production company is focused on, on film, which we still do loads of but we're going to do a bit of photography because we do a lot anyway for yep. ourselves and we've been asked yeah so. uh we also offer underwater photography if anyone yes, wants we that uh, we have well, we have a qualified diver in the room yeah yeah and i'm not talking about a paddy dive, dive reveal either <laughs> i'm not knocking anyone that's done a paddy course but it is a bit of a joke <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I have done many, many years of diving. So. And you have done the paddy course. And I've done, yeah, exactly. And so, so have I. So hang on. So I am very qualified to say what I think about about it. And that is because I not only have I done the paddy course, I've done the commercial diving course, and I've done the Navy divers course. So I have done all three of them. And I can quite frankly say that the paddy course is a joke <laughs> and probably gets people killed. <laughs> You realise that we're going to get emails yeah, well, from people getting but, upset. But I, I'm, not, I'm not knocking people that have done the course because I think it's an amazing thing to do and it opens, opens the door for you to do it. <clears throat> I am just knocking, I think, the amount of training that you get and then you're thrust into the world of diving. But that's when your own being sensible in yourself comes in. Yeah, your own limitations. Yeah. Well, you've got to know what you do. But I, I sometimes get the feeling people come out and they think they're like like the daddy. The daddy. And they're like, oh, I can do anything now. Where Calm down. Just slow down. You know, my training when I was a Navy diver was two years, not three days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the whole point sorry, behind sorry, the, sorry, the whole yeah. run uh, was that we have we can do underwater photography as well. Uh, I can as, do it. Yeah. As well as, oh, because he's quite I've got, I've got a snorkel um, <laughs> and I can hold my breath for a bit. So a hose pipe. Byron and we've a, got a disposable camera yeah. as well. <laughs> Uh, as well as aerial photographer, a lot of you will have seen the drone work that we do. Uh, Daryl is actually, as well as being the underwater guy, he's also the drone pilot. So I go above and ab- uh, above and below uh, ground, uh, uh, below ground, uh, and I am a qualified drone pilot. So we're doing. Uh, I mean, we do a lot of cinematography with our drones, um, but we're also starting to do some surveying as well. So. You never know. These things, they might be services that you need. So go and check out <laughs> pageproductionsuk.com, a plug for our own production company within that's our the podcast. First, that's it's the, the first, first time we've ever, ever done it, actually. actually. Yeah. And the production company has been on the go for longer than the podcast. I think we're doing pretty Yeah, well, a lot so longer, yeah. Uh, I, but I might add that we are actually very busy. So if you want something, you can't ring up and say tomorrow because tomorrow, it's not going to happen. Yeah, or very, very unlikely. Yeah. And it's well, amazing. actually, no, I should rephrase. It can happen if the price is right. <laughs> it's amazing how many people think of things at the last minute that they would really like whatever it is, pictures or footage. Yeah. And it's it's not like in two months' time, even then they've known about it for a year. It's yeah. next week. Uh, with a bit of time, we can normally plan. Yeah. Uh we had a competition winner. So we, the last competition that we ran was for a Caldwell front shooting rest. Yeah, apologies that we didn't do a live video or anything like the game Yeah, fair. sorry, it, it was hectic. It was hectic. We are only human, and sometimes we we do forget things. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. But we did we, give we it apologize. away. We did give it away. And fact, to someone, not one of our friends or anything like that, we did give it away to someone that had entered the competition through Facebook. It was Facebook, yeah. They won, yeah. Um, his name was... Uh, Scott Reed, and I, I'm pretty sure it was actually his daughter who tagged him in it so for him to enter. So good on you! And she actually brought her dad to come and pick it up from my house last night. And there's a picture on our podcast page of Scott picking up the Caldwell shooting rest. Uh, so I really hope you have a good time with yeah, it, Scott. That's pretty he cool. says he does a lot of long range shooting, so he's going to use it for load development. So it went, it went to the right person. It did go to the right person. Now. So we're, we're rambling on a bit before the show, but I think we deserve it because we've not had a, enough of our fill over the last few weeks. We've had lots we've of other, other people, people other people talk. Uh, I have been filming bees uh, last week. In, Daryl's a little in, bit besotted tom- by in, this. Yeah, t- in Tomartan. And I went and bought a bee book straight away the day after because I thought it was absolutely amazing. And I have decided that I am going to get into beekeeping at some point I after reading my book. 
I need to wait until next year. Basically, I've missed the boat for this year. Uh, I think we need to do a B podcast. I th- we do need to do a B podcast. I think there'll be some someone. Because fascinated. you've got the contact now, yeah. don't you? If there's anyone in the northeast of Scotland or anywhere actually in the UK that either doesn't beekeep anymore or would like to offer <laughs> this advice. Is Dar- this is down now um, wanting equipment yeah, for free. If you have any equipment that you either want to sell, cheap, cheap, or give away, then talk to me. Yeah. yeah, send me an email podcast at paceproductionsuk.com there you go Daryl's now not, not only have we managed to get a plug in for our production company we've also got a plug in for Daryl for beekeeping yeah. equipment yeah. Uh, but yeah, on a serious note I, I wasn't there Daryl was away filming and it does sound absolutely fascinating he's I've seen actually, some of the pictures and some of the film Yeah, it was amazing you know I'm slightly jealous being surrounded by what each hive had about 50, 60,000 and one location there was about 10 hives and being surrounded by that number of bees, it was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. And uh, it actually gives you a little bit of an adrenaline rush for the first time. You're getting a bit, yeah, a bit no, of a buzz. I was, yeah, I was very, it was really nice. But the bee suits don't work too well, and I got stung twice. Uh, and I wasn't even moving much because I was filming. Um, but the the guy that was uh, with me, he, he'd been beekeeping for 30 years and did it commercially. And uh, I said, well, what's the point in having these suits? And he said, well... Said it's uh, good for the mind to know that you're uh, you're protected. You got a bit of material between <laughs> you, got a bit you and of material, the bees. But he says, but sooner or later you get stung with that number of bees. So. I mean, he was he was hardcore. He had a pair of rubber gloves on, so you wear rubber gloves. And I tucked mine in really nicely, so they couldn't cut my sleeves. He hadn't even bothered to tuck them in. It was like he just slapped them over the top. The bees were all going down his sleeve and everything. He was getting stung left, right, and centre. And he was like the Terminator. Didn't even care. Not a flinch. Not even a flinch. I was amazed when Daryl brought all the gear back into the office. Everything was waxy. Yeah, waxy with the bees all over it. On their feet, you said? Yeah, yeah. They were just waxy and polleny all over it. And they'd only just kind of woken up and started to get going. Because when I was there, they hadn't actually produced any honey. Hmm. So it, they were just they were getting the party started when I... When when you were there. There. Now, yeah. you need to think about how people enter the competition while I tell people what they can win mm. for this podcast. So, Daryl's going to think. Okay. Uh, what you can win is uh, a Hornady reloading manual, but this isn't like the Hornady reloading manuals we have been giving, uh, giving away in the past, and we have given away quite a number of them. This came straight uh, from uh, the distributor down south where I was doing a filming project, or I was consulting on a filming project down there, which I'm sure we will be able to tell you about fairly soon. It's nothing really to do with us, but I was consulting on the reloading aspect of it, and uh, so we will tell you about that soon. Um, So this is the latest edition. It is the 10th edition Hornady reloading manual, and what is cool about this is it's got the Creedmoor loads in it. So if you are a shooter, you probably will have heard about the new, uh, I say I say new, they're actually not that new now, but they're really just coming into this country now, uh, the Creedmoor loads, and they're in this book. So it's the 10th edition, and this is what you have a chance to win. They're worth quite a bit of money. They are worth quite a bit of money. It's it's a great thing yeah. to be given and not have to go and buy. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, um, Daryl? It is. We've not done one for a wee while, and I know there's a few people out there that did ask could we not do picture competitions because they couldn't enter for whatever reason, they might have a camera or anything, but we will include you if you come under the category of you don't have any good pictures or uh, you don't have a camera for whatever reason, uh, you can email us to enter, but in fact, no, it won't work with this competition. Because I want to do a vote. vote you on, want to vote? Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we we promised that we wouldn't do every competition, a yeah. picture competition. We haven't. The last yeah. couple haven't been. So I think we can do it. We can yeah, do a okay. picture competition. So this one is going to be a picture competition, 
but what is going to happen is that we're going to pick the top five mm-hmm. and then people will have to we'll put them all up on our facebook page uh and might even put it on the instagram page i'll figure it out in a minute yeah. we'll put them all up uh, the, like at yeah, the same and then time. it'll be a vote so the most amount of likes uh, so there you go yeah, so that, that's, that's where you have works. to go on to all your friends and it, by the way it can be a picture of Anything. We're just going to go anything. The thing is, we're not judging it, apart from the shortlist. So, uh, shortlist of five. So, whatever you think is going to appeal to people. Literally anything. Landscape, wildlife, shooting, fishing, hunting. Adventure. Adventure. You name it, you can do it. You're looking for something. I was looking for my paper, but I think I only had one thing left on it. Dow's looking at me, looking at my feet, and I I've went to pick up the Hornady reloading manual. I bet you put it inside the book or something. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, I knew what the, the last thing was I was going to say. Okay. Um, are you, is that pretty much it? Are we almost wrapped up? Yeah, I think I think we're... I, sh- I should probably just actually say what this podcast is about. Uh, this podcast was recorded... I'm not sure if you said this at the beginning. This podcast was recorded <laughs> at the GWCT Game Fair. We brought you a very similar podcast to this one year ago, almost exactly. Very except, popular. Except the topic is completely different. And the generator ran out of diesel. At the, <clears throat> yes, uh, just to remind people for what episode that but was. But no, they'd sort it this time. In fact, it was incredibly smooth. It was. Uh, different microphones this time as well. So... I'm going to try and tweak the audio a bit, but it's it's what you expect. It's in a marquee. There's a generator behind. There's you can hear a bit of background noise. There's also a kitchen noise. right next door. Yeah, there were clattering plates. Clattering a lot of plates. They I got told I, to I, I noticed quiet. someone to- went through and told them to be quiet, but I can't cut that out. No. It's impossible. So just bear with us. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty good though. Yeah. It, it's not uh we struggled a bit with the CIC stuff because we weren't even we weren't there for some of the um the actual speeches. Yeah. Um but this we were there. So it's uh, it's not too bad. No. Um the topic for this debate, well first of all there, there's two sort of case studies um mm-hmm. which about which you hear first. Which you hear first yeah. and it's really interesting examples of where hunting and the local community have worked together and sort of public access um, to local amenities and local resources mm-hmm. from the land and wild resources. There's two case studies, and then they open it up to a bit of a panel debate. Uh, with uh, you, you're going to hear f- uh, Rory introduces he does. all so of it. So not, I'm not going to double up. Yeah, but it, it's about public land use essentially yeah. and public access to wild resources. Um, I, I'm on the panel. Uh, I don't talk a huge amount in here. It actually got cut a bit short because the very end of it was supposed to be international examples, and that's really why Rory got me on the on the panel. And was I was kind of I was keeping my powder on. dry for examples in Namibia and the states of, of great examples of public land use and how that contrasts with what we have here and whether it would work. And we never got to that. It it's probably a whole um, podcast by itself. Yeah. Uh, it's something that we can actually talk about with Shane Mahoney when he comes on. Yep. I keep the suggestions coming in for topics of uh, shows. We've had a number of people message us and email us over the last few weeks about things they want talked about. We're going to be doing, I think, tick. So some at point some point soon, I actually need to send an email on that. But yeah, on Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we need to do one on deer management again. Because yes, well, it's very, in fact, I know we're going to do that because I've been speaking to the guys at S and H. There you go. Uh, that was a podcast that was actually hooked up by um, a head of policy at. Our sponsor for this podcast, the Scottish Association for Country Sports, Jules. She's been on this podcast uh, at least twice before, and she hooked up the SNH contacts. I was speaking to them yesterday, and that's going to be towards the end of the year. Uh, I think also another one that has come up is, I think, an introduction to gamekeeping. So we need to get someone on, which is... uh, 
kind of the process, what you need to do from you're in high school, I now want to become a gamekeeper, what you do, what the process is, college course, what you learn, and then when you get into the working world, what you expect mm-hmm. your life to be. Yeah, we should do that. What I, what we can do in the meantime, though, is if you go and check on YouTube and have a look at, uh, I think it's called The Untold Story, A Modern Gamekeeper. Mm-hmm. And we actually made a film that was all with young gamekeepers at college talking about their experiences. Yeah. That's a good place to start. So, But we are going to do a show on that. I think uh, any other shows that we can think of at the top of our head? We, we do have a, a few others. That we are. do. We'll uh, maybe mention them next time in their news podcast. Yeah. Um, so I think that is it. Rory will introduce the guests. Uh, interesting debate. So do enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. You will be hearing from the director in this podcast now because he was also on the panel. We've mentioned it before. Uh, go and check out their website. They also have uh, right now a number of deals with some big car manufacturers where you get money off a new car if you're a member. So that's always a bonus. And uh, thank you for making the effort to uh, wade through the quagmire to get here. Um, for any of you that don't know me, my name is Rory Kennedy. I'm uh, the head of rural at Sheen and Tace. Um, and it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome you here today on behalf of the firm. The purpose of this event, this is the second year we've run it and hopefully it will become an annual event, is to discuss topical and sometimes controversial subjects uh, in land management that often get sensationalised or overly simplified in the wider press. Uh, last year's discussion on rewilding demonstrated that while there are some irreconcilable differences um, on both sides of that polarised debate, there are actually many more motivations in common than divide people. Today's topic is broad. We're looking at field sports as a community enabler um, and it touches on topics such as deer management, land reform, community empowerment, all core celeb of the Scottish Government. However, we hope to turn this on its head and approach it from a a very much a a field sports angle. We have two fascinating case studies uh, to start off with. Um, By coincidence, both both Hebridean. Um, One will be looking at community engagement in field sports under traditional private land owning model, and the other one looking at it from point of view of a community trust, both with very positive outcomes. Uh, while we're on a bit of a type, uh, time frame, we're going to then move on to a panel discussion. If there is time at the end, uh, I'd like to take questions from the audience, obviously time depending. As with the last year's event, it will be recorded for a leading online radio station uh, into the Wilderness podcast, which uh, is very much geared towards hunting and conservation. Um, for all of you that, uh, any of you haven't listened to the Interwilderness, you're, you're really missing a trick. It's available on all podcast uh, platforms, including iTunes, um, and I would very much encourage you to have a look at it. So without further ado, um, it gives me great pleasure to welcome the first of our guests, uh, Toby Fitchner Irving. Um, in 2006, Toby and his wife Mary moved to Muck, and for the benefit of our non-Scottish podcast listeners, Muck is an inner Hebridean island off the west coast of Scotland. It's about a mile wide, two, two miles long, with a population of less than 40. It had a summer tourism footfall, but uh, the rest of the year had limited employment, no scheduled ferry service, and the island had only 10 hours of electricity generation a day. Toby took on the island's estate and its mothballed 1970s hotel and took the bold step of setting up a commercial pheasant shoot. 
Without stealing Toby's thunder, this decision has proven the catalyst for a significant economic turnaround of this island community's fortunes and led to Toby and his wife winning the Sheen and Tate Rural Hero Award at the 2016 Scottish Rural Awards. So Toby, over to you. So what was the motivation behind giving up a perfectly sensible life farming in Aberdeenshire to run a pheasant shoot in Muck? Um, well, I mean, my wife, my wife is from the island, so she was uh, born and brought up there and um, we have uh, we have three young kids, and I think the the, the, the main emphasis was to, to get back to the island so they could be schooled there. So we always wanted to come back. It was always going to be the the plan, and we were very lucky to have the option to take on my my wife's uncle's guest house at the time. He had retired and um, was looking for someone to take that. So timing wise, that that was our sort of slot to get back to the island. Um, and we've been there for, for 10 years now so um, so no it's all it's all been it's all been good fun and, and uh, a different uh, different way of life I suppose from from Aberdeenshire but, uh, but great fun nonetheless yeah so some of the surrounding islands um, have have attempted to um, have pheasant shoots over the years um, I think there was um, there was one on rum egg uh, so you know one in coal it all failed. You must have been faced with quite a, a large amount of skepticism when you said, you know, this 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 incomer from the mainland is yeah. going to set up a successful pheasant shoot. I think the idea of, of driven shooting, uh, which is what we're known for on Muck, was was very alien to everyone out there. It was. Uh, you know, shooting on muck was limited to possibly the odd goose out of a Land Rover window. There was really very nothing, not, certainly nothing formal was, was based there before we came back. And the idea of, of putting pheasants down, everybody kind of understood but didn't really know the nuts and bolts of how the shoot would work. Um, it's, taken, it's taken us 10 years to get to where we're at now. And it, you know we've learnt a lot as we've gone along, and it wasn't easy. There are definitely challenges, weather and transport, logistics, getting out to the island is is uh, getting birds out there and feed and all the rest of it is is, is difficult. Um, but we've 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 kind of got everyone's head around it now, and um, you know there, there's 38 people on live on the island and. Pretty much all of them, in some way, shape, or form, are, are, are involved on shoot days. If they're not beating, they're helping in the house, or babysitting kids, or doing lunches, or you know. So we get most people involved, and everybody's now just about got the hang of it. So, uh, so yeah, we, we've got a good, good crew of beaters now who are all well trained and know what they're doing. And um, it's taken a while to get there, but everyone's everyone's just about there now, I think. So, uh, so yeah. It's been good, um, and uh, we, we do about 28, 28 teams a year come across to us over the winter. We start in early September with the Partridge Days. Um, we, uh, we also have the, the stags on the Isle of Rum, uh, as we do a few sort of uh, packages based around guys will come and stay with us for a week um, they'll, they'll spend a couple of days on rum at the stags they'll come and shoot partridges with us for a day or two as well so we can offer a, a good variety of sport we also have the, the freshwater fishing on rum bit of sea fishing as well so there's a lovely mix of sport you can get up at five o'clock in the morning go out and have a crack at the geese you can go to rum have a stock over there catch a fish over there as well 
uh, come back to us and, and walk up snipe in the afternoon and the evenings and then go for a duck flight at night so there's, there's a real mix of stuff uh, we can offer which which I think is uh, and just our location um, the scenery on the good days is, is, is unparalleled you know it's just stunning yeah, the likes of rum beautiful place as is muck and you know if you get the weather right it's just nowhere better to be it's just a nice nice part of the world and then, and just a bit of an adventure for the guys coming out to us I suppose so, um, so, yeah. and, and from what I understand I mean, it's obviously a well-run shoot because you know, I understand that it's, it's good high birds you're getting about say, 28 days about 120 bird days yeah we, we start our days uh, sort of 120 150 we can do bigger days if people want them but a sort of average bag for us is probably about the 150 180 mark something like that for a day shooting uh, we've got muck on the face of it looks like a relatively flat island compared to our neighbours but um, there's lots of nice lumps and bumps and cliff faces and things like that so we make the most of it and, and we've learnt as well you know we made a load of mistakes at the beginning but you learn as you go along and, and you know we've been at it now a few years so you, we, we, we've learnt what works and what doesn't work and the wind's a big factor with us it's quite a windy place in the winter so um, it's just getting the wind directions right and getting the driving right and uh, getting the guys in the right place and yeah, we can we can present some good. Uh, traditionally, there's not, uh, you know, it's not like your sort of classic pheasant shoot with um, well-established woodlands. No. You've had to make an attempt. You've planted what twenty-five thousand. We, we've planted about fifty thousand trees, and we've planted about fifty thousand trees uh, with uh, with some hedging thrown in as well. So. It's a wild shoot, um, a pretty wild place. Uh, we don't. We used to put pegs out for the guns. We've given up with that because the wind can change in a, in a heartbeat. So we, we we place all the guns, and that's just we make that decision as the as the drive as we come to the drive. Um, we've shot in 60, 70 mile an hour winds before, so it can be quite a challenge. Um, and some of these patches coming off the high ground is pretty much all off heather and and, and scrub ground. Um, the forestry now, the, the trees we planted at the beginning. Are starting to come to life it takes a long time for them to get going out there but, but the sort of early forestry we've done has, has, uh, has done well and is now providing cover so we have a few pockets of forestry but most of the partridges certainly come off the hill ground and, and uh, that seems to work reasonably well so, uh, yeah. and, and uh, a key thing about the the initiative that you've run it in muck um, previously you had a summer tourism footfall but yeah. really nobody went to muck in, in the middle of uh, winter, whereas obviously pheasant shooting being a, a, a predominantly a winter sport, you now have a, a, you finally have a scheduled ferry service uh, during the year. We do. So we we um, we we have a we Calmac provide a ferry service year round. Um, we have I think five boats in the winter and, and up to four boats and sorry five five boats in the summer and up to four boats in the winter. Um, so yeah, that that makes a that makes a big difference. We also use a lot of charter boats as well from from local businesses to bring our guests out. Uh, the, the days we shoot don't always fall into scheduled ferry days, so we, we have a lot of charter boats coming and going the whole time too. Um, yeah, so that that that's that's made a big difference. We we were very busy in the summer, and it's getting busier and busier. But it is a very short season, so at home we can get by April. There's there's the first of the summer tourists are turning up. Um, it's flat out April. May, June, July, August and by September it's starting to sort of tail off again so the shooting season works in very well
well with that. So we get going kind of September time, just when the, the summer trade's starting to slip off. Um, and ironically now, October is probably our busiest month with the, with the pheasants and the stags going at the same time. Um, so that sort of last two weeks in September, first three weeks in October is our, is our kind of busy season. And we can have, you know, we can have up to probably 25, 30 guests on muck every week and maybe 10 or 15 on rum as well. So there's a lot of people coming and going out to the islands at that time of year. And we do, we shoot, we obviously finish on rum on the on the 20th of October, um, but we keep shooting at home until the end of January. So we have guests coming uh, right to the end of January, which is extended the season. And critically, what, what has been the impact of that? Because that's really changed the dynamic of the island. How has that helped local, the local community, yeah. and particularly from an economic point of view, local businesses? Yeah, so I mean, we, you know, we, we, we've worked out, we have somewhere between maybe three and four hundred guests coming out to us, to us and rum over the course of the season. Uh, just on bed nights alone, um, we, we've been doing a bit of research and we reckon that our guests on average are spending about 120, 150 pounds a night on accommodation, uh, on meals and on booze and all the rest of it. And, and we, uh, you know, we, we, we reckon there's, there's, there's somewhere around the sort of 180,000 mark just going into local accommodation providers, uh, meals, restaurants, all that sort of stuff. Just just before they even pull the trigger, that's that's what's going into the community. We're supplying uh, we're supplying game as well locally. We've got the boat charter companies. We spend a lot of money with them every year. They do a great job for us. Um, we've got the local fisherman on the island. He's catching shellfish for us right through the season to feed to our own guests. We've got beaters, gillies, stalkers, all those guys uh, who are all live either on the island or round about us who are all flat out at that time of year. Uh, and we have a full-time gamekeeper at home who, who is, you know, we live in a very small community and it, it sounds, you know, one guy's come with his family to work for us full-time, but it makes a big difference at home. You know, we have a primary school on the island. Um, there are nine kids in the primary school at the moment. Um, it's doing really well with a small population like ours. And you know it's nice to nice to be able to add to that and bring somebody to the island with a young family and, and uh, you know they're working for us full time now as well. So so it has a lot of knock on effects as well, and that that happens from you know from Fort William right the way down through through Loch Arbor and then onto the islands especially. But you know we, we, we reckon most of our guests spend roughly four nights on average uh, either with us or on rum or in hotels in Arasig or Malig or up to Fort William. So there's a big knock on effect and all these places tend to be pretty quiet at that time of year. So um, the local hotels are, are, are pretty chuffed to get to get guys and, and you know our groups especially coming to us are you know usually based between eight and sixteen people so it, 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 there's a good volume of traffic coming through at that time of year. And from what I understand I mean yeah, say the islands mile wide by about two miles yeah, long. Yet, despite that, you are largely self-sufficient from a point of view of supplying food to the hospitality side of things. Yeah, so I mean, we, we run the lodge at home, um, and my, my wife's an excellent cook. She uh, pretty much everything on the island uh, that we that we feed to our guests. We have a fisherman at home that does all the shellfish. We have. Uh, we have our own garden as well that does a lot of the sort of salads and veg and things like that. Obviously venison we get in from rum, uh, we have our own feathered game. Uh, the farm supply us with lamb and pork, um, so you know we have we have uh, a great larder on our doorstep. And, 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 and uh, vegetables as well, I understand. Yeah, veg and fruit and things like that too, soft fruit at this time of year. Um, and it's, it's 
from from a from a my wife hates being called a chef, but from a cook's point of view, um, it's a nice thing for us to have. We're very lucky that it's on our doorstep, I and mean, to me, it's only right to, to use that stuff. And quality-wise, you just you won't get better anywhere else. You know, it, it's as fresh as you like. We can pick a lobster out the sea at six o'clock and serve it for dinner that night, and that's that makes all the difference. You know, so we're 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 supporting all these guys locally as well, and, and a lot of that's being being fed to the guests from the house. And then, then um, just, just to finish off, really, from a point of view of biodiversity as well, understand that you know, muck is a, a very fragile ecosystem. You've got about 40 different types of nesting species. In the first year, you obviously had a big drive on vermin control, and, and you've planted trees, and there's the supplementary feeding of pheasants. What, what's been the actual impact on the island from that? That's been one of the highlights for me. I'm a keen, keen birder. Um, I, I like, I like wildlife in general and birds especially. And, and for me, uh, Muck had a fairly serious rat problem when we got there, and we, we spent a lot of time trapping rats and poisoning and all the rest of it. Uh, and we've now got the rat population has has crashed. We still have rats, but we, we caught up to 1,500 rats in tunnels the first year we were there, and just kind of really flattened them out. But um, so that that's made a big difference. And and, and you know other species like carrying crows we wipe them out in the spring with trapping and shooting and all the rest of it we're lucky there we haven't got foxes or stoats or anything like that but we can just by controlling the rats and controlling the crows it makes a huge difference and we're now seeing you know the snipe numbers uh, have gone through the roof we've had lapwings breeding there which has never happened before we've got probably 20 or 30 pairs of lapwings at home now breeding we have curlew breeding there as well um, a huge array of wildlife and uh, uh, everything you know we, we get all the we have golden eagles nesting at home now which we're only 1600 acres and for golden eagles to nest on such a small site is uh, they're there because they're eating birds you know there's no other reason they're there uh, they can survive there because of that and it's lovely to see them and we have everything from from sea eagles passing through to, to merlin as well so you get the full full work of of, uh, of raptors lots lots of songbirds and um uh, is it, the waders especially, it's nice to see them flourishing there and they're, they're doing really well. And that's largely, I think, down to, down to just, just the control of rats and crows, you know, it's, it, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, there's no magic, uh, magic success to that, it's just, it's just hard vermin control makes a big difference, I think. And, and, and you manage to do that, and this is the, the main purpose of, I suppose, achieving an efficient shoot and you're getting about an 80% return yeah. as well as all the environmental benefits. Yeah, we, we have we have a good return rate. I mean, our birds are captive, more or less. Uh, they're surrounded by sea um, and, um, you know, we haven't got neighbours or anything shooting, so it makes, it makes a big difference. We, we shoot across pretty much every inch of the island, uh, so we do catch up with a lot of our birds. Um, and uh, But it, what's been really nice to see is the wild bird population has... has just exploded. I mean, snipe numbers have gone through the roof since we started shooting. And yes, we shoot snipe, but there's there's now a, 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 we don't shoot the snipe hard, but we shoot them perhaps once a month, something like that. Uh, and the snipe numbers are building each year, and we're shooting more and more snipe and seeing more and more snipe, which is which is lovely to see. Uh, and then you have all the follow-on from that, so all the other waders are, are doing well out of that as well. So it has a knock-on effect. We're, we're we're clearly doing what we do because of the game, but the knock-on effect is that all the other 
species are, are, are benefiting from that. And we feed right through, so we never stop feeding. Um, we've got, apart from a few game crops, we have we have no cereal crops on the island, so um, we, we feed all year round, and, and there's always there's always food for something there. So. I think it's a great case study, and it just shows that you can have community engagement and a huge amount of um, benefit to local e ecosystems from the private uh, land ownership model of field sports. Um, now to show a bit of bit of balance, we're looking at uh, the, the other side of land ownership, and um, I'm very uh, pleased to introduce Gordon Cumming from North Harris Trust. Um, just to give you a bit of background, um, Gordon is land manager on the North Harris Trust. It was bought by the community in 2003. The Trust's 25,900 hectares represents one of the largest community-owned estates in Scotland and has some of our most remote and rugged terrain, including the highest peak in the West Niles. The Trust manages the land on behalf of the community and is open to all residents and is run by a board of locally elected volunteer directors. Uh, with around a thousand inhabitants, North Harris is sparsely populated and most of those people, or only half, live in Tarbert. In 2004, the Trust facilitated the establishment of the innovated, innovative Harris Stalking Club, providing community-based stalking that is open to anyone living in the Harris or South Locks area of Lewis and is run by the members as a separate body of the Trust. So, Gordon, thank you for making the effort to, uh, to, to come down today. Could you talk us through how the, the Stalking Club operates and its main benefits to the community? Can I just say a little, little bit more on the history side, the introduction there that you said, Rory. Um, the stalking club that for North Harris is focused entirely on the, on the hind stalking side of things. We actually manage the deer population in partnership with the Abensuya Castle Estate. So when the buyout of North Harris took place, the community purchased the land, they showed the associated stalking and shooting rights, whereas the fishing rights and the big house, Abensuya Castle, went to another private landlord and that's still very much run as a, a sporting estate in North Harris and so we manage the deer population alongside Avonsuya Castle. However, when the buyout took place in 2003 you can imagine there was quite a lot of negotiations with Avonsuya Castle estate. They had an established business, they employ a lot of people in the community and, and the estate's part of the heart of the community and certainly as a community landlord we didn't want to see that interfered with. So straight away uh, agreement was made that Avonsea Castle would have a long term lease of the stag stalking rights. That was where they made their money and the stags were important in attracting their guests and extending their season. <coughs> Excuse me, can I have a wee drink or something? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, as I say, they were then sat around the table. I wasn't there at that time, but I understand there were some extensive discussions. Um, the issue with the Hines is, as Rory said, it's a very big estate. Uh, there are places where you would have to, after shooting a hind, you'd have to drag it eight kilometres uphill to find your quad bike because you because we really don't want the quads running all over the place. Uh, and places where it's, you know, 10, 11 kilometres to a road. So taking hinds off the hill in the winter, short days, wild weather, it's not really that attractive a proposition for guests a lot of time. You know, people would book to go stalking and of course ferries wouldn't run. So there were all sorts of issues with taking the hinds. Um, we also had a, a situation where you suddenly got 
a population of a thousand people who own the estate and they're thinking, well, actually, we can go out and shoot the deer now. They're, they're ours. So something had to be put in place formally to make sure that people understood that the deer was to be properly managed and no, you just can't go and pop one out the window of your van. Okay. Um, so the suggestion was that we set up a deer stalking club. And as Roy said, the club itself is a standalone group. It's not a part of the trust. It's a, it has its own constitution, its own bank account, and its own insurances. Uh, we do limit the club membership to people who live within Harris. I think there has to be a community buy-in buy to the deal management. I think it's important that the membership comes from within the area that they're working on. And we've restricted the membership to 25 members. Now that's partly linked to the number of hinds we expect to take off the hill a year. Um, we are at the moment taking uh, about 40 stags and 80 hinds and that's in line with a deer management plan. Uh, so there's 80 hinds. In the first instance we would be speaking to Avon City Castle about their interest in those hinds. So they would take a quota and then what's left over and it's usually more than half, so at the moment it's actually split 30-50 between the, 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 the Avonsea Castle and the Stalking Club. And 50 works really nicely because there's 25 members, so they get two each. So it's working very well like that at the moment. Now, the membership themselves, of the 25 members, the vast majority that now have DSC1 certification to make sure that they all know what they're doing and uh, they're acting properly on the hill. Uh, they all, of course, have to be firearms compliant. We insist that they have to go out in pairs uh, to keep an eye on one Well, it's a health and safety thing, but it also means they're keeping an eye on one another when they're out on the hill and we've got people to corroborate any stories that, that go out and about. Um, one of the, the key parts of the kind of running of the club is, is the booking system. Um, before our members can, can go out onto the hill, they have to book online on a Google Calendar. You know, the same Google Calendar I'm sure a, a lot of us use. But it's, um, it works really well because it's, it's open and visible to everybody. So we've got 25 members who can book a hind out on the hill, they just go online, book on the calendar, and everybody else that's on that calendar gets a notification to say, Murray and Murder are going out onto Chirigavor tomorrow. And immediately you've got all those eyes keeping an eye on what's happening. Everybody knows the score. And when they come back off the hill, we insist that they have to put another record onto that calendar to see you know, roughly what they've shot, what they've seen. So we've got an instant idea of what's happened. Because you can imagine with this club, there's a lot of rumours go around about, and the biggest or the best way to tackle that is to make sure that the information is, is right out there immediately. Uh, they're also required to keep you know, proper game book records, but they're handed in at a later date. So they're all issued with pro formers. So for every animal, we get a, a record, a full record of what, of what they have taken off the hill. Um, all that, well, it's my job at the end as well. I oversee that calendar and what everybody's activities are. And at the end of the season, I like to get that data together, collate it all and report it back to the club and to the estate and even hopefully as the deer management group gets organised we'll, we'll, we'll spread that information further. Uh, I think that giving the information back to the members is really important. They've got to understand that they're managing a population of deer and it's not just about them going out and getting their, their own carcass at the end of the day. So really that, that's how the club works.
And what about the, the venison harvesting side? Um, are are the, the members entitled to keep the, the, the venison from the stalking? Yes. Um, so, as I say, at the moment they're getting two hinds, uh, and so they, they, are, they have the carcasses, they're able to take them home. And uh, of course they're dealing with them themselves, they are, they are not going into the, the wider food chain, they can't sell the venison. But so it's for their own use and of course I, I, it's going around their friends and family within the community. And you have quite a lot of facilities? We have had, we don't at the moment actually, okay. most people have uh, taken to taking home to their own garages and sheds and so on. It may be that we go back towards that actually. The castle, I would say a castle, uh, when this was started, did not have an established venison business, but they do now. Uh, so I'm surprised they don't have a stand here at the show today. But, um, but they now uh, are taking more venison. And, and there are times when we've had to organise joint calls. At the end of the season, maybe we are not meeting our quota. So we've tried to get the club and the castle together to go out and call certain remote areas. And then they would take that meat, would go back, or those carcasses would go back to a registered larder, fully kitted out larder. And then that meat would then be dealt with by having see a castle estate. Okay. Um, I, I, I'd like to, in a, in a minute we'll open up to a wider panel discussion and I'll introduce the, the various speakers in, in turn, but we have Aileen Stewart from Scottish Natural Heritage. I think it's just worth touching on the side that the Toby um, the shooting you do on ROM is um, on SNH land and in a lease agreement with them. Uh, Gordon, you, you have interplay with SNH, it's a, it's a special area of conservation that you operate on, um, highly fragile ecosystem. Yeah. How does that work, the interplay with SNH? Well, up until very recently we've had a, because of the SAC uh, and looking after the designated habitats, we've had a, a management agreement in place with SNH. Uh, because of that management agreement, you know, we're quite closely monitored as part of that management agreement. They, they carry out deer counts and they carry out habitat impact assessments to see whether the area is being overgrazed. And, and of course this data is then put forward to see what condition the land is in and governs the cull levels that are set for the trust. So the culls that we are asked to do on the land are very much in line with our agreements with SNH and, and is supported very much financially and, uh, and advisory on an advisory basis by SNH. And from a point of view looking at the model, it really is tripartite because there's the, the community involvement, there's obviously the government agencies, the conservation side of it, mm -hmm. and you're working hand in glove with Amsuri Castle, uh, one of the most iconic privately owned sporting estates in Scotland. Yeah. That model, do you feel there is scope to widen that across Scotland? Do you, and, and, and if so, what are the main barriers to that working? I, well, first of all, I would say that the partnership with the estate helps an awful lot. Um, we, the club itself, it's voluntary. You know, we can't force the guys to go out shooting. It, it does have its shortcomings, so it does help that you have a professional stalking group there who can step in and so a support the activities of the stalking club, but also step in if if it falls short somewhere. So that's important. So I, I see it. In a, on a wider perspective around the country, I would like, I would suggest that if somebody else is looking at this, that, that, that that's the kind of setup you need. It's very good to have that community involvement because it brings in 
a lot of manpower uh, or woman power. We do have female members as well, and um, and it brings and that local interest helps along the way. But uh, but it, I think it does it does work well. It's, it shouldn't really be a them and us. It's a how we can do this together and 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 make the most of it. So I think it's a very interesting model. Um, I, th I think at this stage it would be good to introduce the, the panellists and, and widen this out to uh, the, the rest of the discussion and I, th I thank the speakers for the case studies. If I could introduce the, the panellists from my left, um, we have Alex Stoddard who you might well know from uh, last year. Alex is director of the Scottish Association for, Ca uh, for Country Sports. Um, Alex is a native Gaelic speaker uh, from Sky. He was formerly a professional deer manager uh, before careers in the military in the city and um, Alex now heads Scotland and Northern Ireland's largest field sports body. Uh, the next speaker is Richard Cook who is chairman of the Association of Deer Management Groups. Richard has a deep understanding of the wider political uh, matters surrounding deer management. Uh, he's also he also has practical experience of deer management including managing both forestry and commercial stalking interests being the factor of the 150,000 acre Dalhousie Estates. Um, this is a geographically diverse land holding ranging from prime arable lowland through to Heathermoor and open moorland, sorry, open mountain. We then have Aileen Stewart, who is Head of Policy and Advice for Scottish Natural Heritage. Aileen's role includes giving a strategic lead on policy including rural development, landscape, recreation, ecosystem approaches and habitats and species. Um, largely for the benefit of the podcast listeners, SNH is a Scottish government agency um, that uh, is responsible for our natural uh, spaces in Scotland. And finally, we have Byron Pace, um, who, for the listeners of the podcast, will, will, will know him very well. But uh, Byron is a um, is a sporting and conservation journalist. He's written for a number of sporting magazines around the world, as well as presenting features on for online sporting channels such as the Shooting Show and Field Sports Channel. Uh, Byron and his brother Daryl have founded and present the Into the Wilderness podcast. So if I could first of all open this up, um, I, I thought largely for the people in the room, but particularly the podcast listeners, Richard, could I start with you just to give the listeners a very, very brief outline of the ADMG and explain how you seek to align the various competing interests across deer management? Okay, Rory, thank you. Well, ADMG was set up in um, 1992, and um, it represents the deer management groups across the highlands of Scotland, and I emphasise it's the red deer range pretty much. I mean, the, the two are not separate, but not the lowland area, which is now represented by the lowland deer network, uh, which is, um, has different objectives, and uh, is at an earlier stage in its evolution, I think it's fair to say. There um, are 44 established deer management groups with quite a number of new ones in the making, uh, and they're all at probably different places in terms of their own evolution, and they range enormously in size from three or four members to, well, up to 50 in one case. Um, and they extend to ranges of up to half a million acres um, in some areas. They, as has emerged in the recent parliamentary review of deer management, they're all very different. Um, I think everybody now accepts Eileen will confirm that the one-size-fits-all approach to deer management is not appropriate or workable. Um, so it's about local solutions for local situations. Um, deer management is, has long been and will long continue to be, I suspect, highly controversial um, in political terms. 
because there are some interests who would like to see very few of them, so that Scotland, last year's debate was about rewilding, um, Scotland will become more like Norway, which had a very long period with very little grazing, over 100 years, and, and much more woodland cover than Scotland has. Um, but I think that's, it's debatable whether the people of Scotland and the people who visit Scotland actually value a wooded landscape or um, uh, the open mountain scenery that, that we're famous for around the world. So there is always a debate about that, and deer are one of the engineers that keep the land the way it is largely, but by no means totally, uh, devoid of woodland cover. Um, and uh, I think another point that has come out recently in the political discussion is that it's not just about deer, it's about grazing and herbivore impacts as a whole. And until we understand that, um, a um, single uh, rather obsessive approach to one grazier is un most unlikely to give us a sustainable uh, management approach. And there are quite a few conflicts in government policy, which in some cases is not the fault of either Scottish natural heritage or um, the Scottish government, because a lot of it comes from Europe. But there is still a situation where um, to get your subsidy under the single farm payment, you need to maintain your sheep numbers or indeed increase them in some cases. Um, whereas at the same time, we're being urged to reduce deer numbers. Now, whether that's the right economic trade-off uh, depends, as I say, on local circumstances. Um, looking to the future, my personal view, and this is going back to your discussion last year, is that we can all make a little more room for nature at the same time as maintaining our economic activities. Um, deer stalking has, is important both for its um, employment contribution. Uh, we carried out um, last year, we commissioned a, uh, an independent consultancy report on the economic impact of deer management in Scotland and came up with a figure of 141 million. Um, and uh, which generates 2,520 full-time equivalent jobs, which is actually far more bodies than that, because of course a lot of it is seasonal. Um, and you know that has an important part to play, particularly in the areas where there isn't much else that can be done um, in economic terms. Um, so the way ahead, I think, is is more integration uh, between different land uses. And the private estates have been doing that for years, but in some respects, it's only just being discovered. Um, in the broader spectrum um, and I think there is room for the government policy to expand woodland cover um, carefully, um, not in the way that was done in the 80s in the peatland areas. Um, the other government policy which is of real interest at the moment is peatland restoration and carbon sequestration <coughs> and deer management groups and their plans <coughs> are being um, expected to address all those aspects because of not only their private benefits to the landowner in question, but also because of the public um, benefits that they bring. And that's me. Shot my bolt. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. That summed up uh, very well indeed. Um, I often think it's quite a, a curious quirk we have in, in deer management Scotland that you can have one glen and one end of the glen you have a conservation body or somebody that's looking at rewilding and, and every deer is seen as a cost and there's contractors going in and uh, shooting at expense of the landlord and then the other end of the same glen where the deer moving between the two it could be a commercial model where that deer being taken off the hillside would have a direct cost to the shooter of you know, 500 pounds it would be worth thousands of pounds to the local economy um, and the two are quite far apart um, 
and really I think North Harwich Trust is an example maybe of somewhere that's in the middle is the, the Basque scheme in, in Aaron um, and the Scottish Association for Country Sports has recently started a similar scheme in Dunfries and Galloway. Alex, if I could bring you in, could, could you just give us a, an outline of, of how the, the SAC scheme will work and what, what were the key motivations for SACs behind that? One of the key motivations was the accessibility and affordability of sustainable hunting opportunities, both with rifle and shotgun. And one of the um, main gripes that we get from members across the UK is that they're struggling to afford their hunting, shooting activities. So we, for a while we've been trying to find a way around that. And albeit you need to pay for leases and it's an element of, of, of cost recovery, what we're looking to do now is to create a sustainable model for um, uh, hunting in areas where uh, members have you know, reasonably easy accessibility to that area and then provide them with an option for um, a booking system online where they can come for a very small cost, turn up for a weekend of three, four, five days and uh, ha have a good time but also harvest sustainably um, deer or, or woodcock or whatever. So it's something that we're currently working on. We're currently looking at a number of other areas in Scotland and actually the UK too for those schemes. And the member feedback so far has been very, very strong. It's something that they're keen to look at, pursue. And it's something that as an organisation, albeit we do a lot of other representative work, um, it's something very keen to invest in for the future. But one of the key things for us is the... Um, the model where more ordinary people involved in country sports of whatever kind means that um, country sports itself becomes more accessible and more um, socially um, acceptable. That's really, really important because we have a demographic in Scotland certainly where the majority of people now come from multi-generational urban backgrounds. And we can blame landowners for that in the past and the clearances driving people off the, the glens and the straths into the cities and the dockyards and that's created a multi-generational nature of dis uh, um, disconnect. That's something that needs to be addressed and one of the ways in doing that is trying to widen the audience for country sports. It's not often just trying to get people involved in country sports, it's trying to get people to understand what we do and why we do it. Now, for my own part, I crofted some from Sky, Gaelic-speaking family. But interesting enough, my, both my grandfathers were involved in land issues in the past. My grandfather on my maternal side was shipped from Harris in 1923 by rowing boat to the Isle of Skye with corrugated iron, nails, hammer, bits of wood, and they had built a shelter in a place in the sky with no roads, no access whatsoever. They were resettled there after the First World War. My grandfather on my father's side was actively involved in the land raids after the First World War. So for me now to be sitting, running a country sports organisation in Scotland, where the perception would be that I come from a public school background, is, is just not the case. That's, that's a really strong model for the future, where Scottish Government and the Scottish population can see that many, many people involved in country sports across Scotland come from very ordinary backgrounds. And we find that within our own membership demographic, the vast majority of people that hunt, shoot and fish in Scotland are from that background. It's really important for us that the um, pillars of sustainability, the three pillars, you have the environment, you've got the economy, you've got the social, cultural aspect as well. 
that they are supported. Because one of the real problems that we have right now is, is that you have this almost obsessive focus on habitat impact assessments, natural heritage and the environment. Well, that's fine. But without looking at and supporting the other two pillars of sustainability, the whole model will collapse. So it's important that we have vibrant communities with local people, access to work that they have now in, on Mark and Harris and Sky now and other models there. And those local people within sustainable communities, viable sustainable communities, they will then add value to their economy and they'll add value to their environment too. So I see a great focus now for us all working together rather than working in a dysfunctional way on single routes to our own specific outcomes. I think it's time to cross-populate ideas. Panels like this are fantastic. It's great to hear from the guys from Gordon and from, from, from uh, Toby about how their schemes are, are working. Um, there are challenges out there. Not all community schemes are working very well. But it's good to have the conversation about how we can make them better. I think one of the, the interesting things about the Sachs model um, is that it's in conjunction with a sporting agent. So you have an estate that has some of the biggest heads in Scotland come off it, uh, a very well-known estate. From the point of view of making this balance economically, the, the, the prime stalking, the stags, is still going to be your tourism, uh, your tourist shooters who will be bidding money to the local economy. And really what the SAC scheme is doing is it's retaining the, the, the cull element that normally is a cost to the landowner and it's actually giving a, a, a well-managed community solution to that. So it's ensuring that people are suitably qualified, going out in pairs, risk assessed, the whole thing's run in a very structured way. And I, I would like to explore with some of the panellists about you know, do, do they see that, that, that almost joint venture between a community initiative and the, the commercial sporting estate, does it have legs across the country? If, if, if I could just come into that and maybe lead into Byron, who can then cover the, the wilderness hunting aspect a bit more. What we're trying to do with the Galloway scheme is really incentivise wild hunting, where you're going out on your tod by yourself in pretty rough country and you're going to take a sustainable harvest of deer within a very specific deer management plan. And people like the idea because it's hard work, you, you, you're, you're involved in um, taking deer back for yourself and there's an element of individual responsibility and that responsibility in terms of sustainable hunting is I think something really important for the future but Byron is very much involved with this and he's a good man to speak to. Um, yeah, Byron I can bring you in, you, you've probably done more uh, to sort of push the idea of wilderness hunting in Britain, so certainly in Scotland, uh, than anyone in recent years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, from my point of view, the reason why we started to talk about it more and make it uh, more open that that's the kind of hunting that we were doing was because simply because that's what we like to do. And I think it's, uh, in terms of the perception of how hunters are perceived to the wider public and the wider world, I think that idea of just your average person going out by themselves and doing it for very honest reasons, uh, where the end result, if you're lucky enough, is to put food back on your table and probably get, you know, share that spoils with your friends and, and relatives, is something that the general public maybe don't realize is actually the reason that a lot of us do what we do. 
Um, so when we started to, when we started the podcast, <clears throat> when we started to do some filming, it was that kind of hunting that we were trying to sort of kick open the door. Because I think it's, it's a lot easier for people uh, outside of our circles of hunting to relate to that very wild aspect of it, of hunting uh, wild game in a very sort of raw, natural way that almost harks back to where it used to be uh, as a sort of more primitive man. It's very much more e easier for them to relate to that than the sort of the more commercial world of it. Um, and it, it certainly seems to have worked. I think that there is definitely a shift in the hunting community as well. That, uh, these days, we've seen it sort of in the last 10 years, really starting the States and, and coming over to Europe now, where more people want to take more responsibility about the hunting that they're doing. And that tends to be hunting those slightly wilder places, those harder to reach locations, and doing it in a way where you are personally responsible from everything from start to finish. You know, I, I love being able to go out with and hold on to the tradition that we have so strongly here in Scotland where you're, you're going out with a stalker and you, you have the, the honor of being able to use a garron, which is one of the most incredible experiences, but equally, uh, there is something uh, that really makes you sort of realize who you are and where you've come from when you have the opportunity to do it by yourself. And that's kind of what we were trying to show with the, the, the filming that we did and through conversations like we're recording you know this conversation here and people that we brought on to the podcast who were trying to portray similar sorts of experiences and then also explain all of the knock-on benefits of that which you know we've, we've already heard some of that with regard to uh, you know habitat and biodiversity and, and just the general management of the game that's the only thing anecdotally I, I know a lot of people listen to your podcasts and watch your films but have no active interest in hunting but they what you do inspires them to find out more and I, I certainly feel if you look around Europe and North America where hunting doesn't tend to often have that perception of being a class-based system, you know, a class-based hobby, it's something that everyone participates in different, different standards of, of ground but you can get on public ground and hunt on a very, relatively affordable basis. There's actually less of a an anti-hunt agenda in politics as a result and I think there's maybe a, a slight pang of envy behind a lot of the anti-field sports movement. Um, Richard, if I could bring you back in from a point of view of that model of that sort of third way uh, sort of approach to uh, deer management and field sports, how, how what do you see the main bar uh, barriers for commercial estates sort of working with organisations deliver that? I don't think there are any real barriers. I mean, it's, it's a model that, as we've heard earlier, is already working in some cases, and I don't see why it can't work in others. Um, and um, uh, the, the natural first um, place to go if you're looking for um, individuals to undertake your deer management, and this might well appeal to quite to a number of smaller states who can't really justify full-time employment of a stalker, is to the local community. Um, and I'd, I'd like to slightly translate this to the lowland situation, where um, the land ownership patterns and the land management um, types are far more fragmented and there is great potential there for, and there are a lot of people in the lowlands, I mean, I'm told that there are 6,000 people in Scotland with DSC level 1 and a good number of those will have level 2 as well, um, assuming that that follows the population density to some 
extent, one would assume that at least two-thirds of those are to be found in the lowlands, and they're all quietly getting on with their hobby, which is deer management, and they take it, because I've worked with them pretty closely in the lowland deer network, they take it very seriously, they take the training aspect. They're, um, um, I mean, to, to describe them as an anorak, would be anoraks on, on the subject would be an, under, an understatement. They're, they're completely dedicated, and they're a resource of which we could make far more use. So I, I think the process where um, deer management is, is percolating down to more and more people at all sorts of different levels is a thoroughly healthy one. But it's not a new one. It's been going on for quite a while, and, but it's very good that it's continuing to develop that way. Aileen, if I could possibly bring bring you in. Um, SNH owns 35,500 hectares of Scotland, leases a further 7,500. Uh, what are the sort of volumes of deer that are being culled in your land? And is there a, uh, currently a, a mix of contractor culling or professional culling and sport? Um, there is a mix and, and a growing mix. I mean, we, we started from a position where most of the stalking on our land was done by our own staff and done to you know the, the management plans that have been agreed for these places. But increasingly, we are experimenting and trying different approaches. And, and Toby's example that, that um, he talked about in Rum has worked really well for us. I mean, we, we were really keen to go down that route because we could see the spin-off benefits for the community. Um, it's not that long ago, in only 2011, that we transferred the, the parcel of land that the community and the village um, to the community, and we wanted to make sure that along with that, you know, there were opportunities for employment and economic gain. So it's been um, a, a really good success story, I think, and we want that to continue. And we're looking at opening out that further on rum and, and providing opportunities to uh, take some of the hind curl and, and also some goats as well, just to, to support that kind of mix of opportunities. So, um, you know, we are learning from these experiences and we're trying to um, explore that with all of our reserves. When we come up with plans, we're going to look at, uh, we do engage with community, we get feedback and if there's a real appetite and there's an interest and, and there's skills and experience there, we will try and work with them and we are in a number of our other um, reserves like Ben Wivis and, and a few other places so it's a kind of developing field but I think you know we're, we're really up for it and, and certainly on North Harris I think we've worked very well with the trust there as well just to try and look for opportunities where we can support um, the community and, and just provide that additional element I mean it, it's, it does very much follow on from what um, Richard was saying it's about opening out opportunities and, and just breaking down those kind of barriers and getting people to understand that there are there's an economic benefit and a social benefit from this. I mean, our perspective is obviously we see the environment as being the underpinning foundation, that we have to have a good environment to get that sporting and to get that quality and to get the, you know, the, the wider range of species. So that has to be at the heart of it. But, you know, these things can be developed in balance and we can get um, really good success stories on the ground. Um, we've also done a lot of work um, in terms of supporting the sort of marketing of, of wild food as well, because obviously we've supported um, uh, Scotland's Natural Larder, which has been a really great initiative, and that's really about promoting wild food in, in the range of you know, deer, venison, geese has been another kind of opportunity that we've really tried to pursue just to open up that kind of avenue and just make sure that people realise what, what fantastic produce we do have from the countryside sport so um, there's a lot of interest and willingness to work in these areas so I think you know as far as we can we will support these opportunities. And a lot, a lot of the government agencies that, um, that own lands they, they, they place quite a strong emphasis on 
enhancing public immunity and um, so certainly the likes of Forest Enterprise talks about sort of reaching out to different communities about accessing the, uh, the, the forest resources we have. For a point of view of SNH policy, would you consider field sports to be uh, an amenity that should be promoted? Absolutely, you know, uh, provided it can be done, and it often can in a way that is in keeping with, you know, the wider needs. Obviously, our reserves are there to promote and, and to get people there and to get people out to enjoy the natural world. And, and, you know, as long as we can do things that are compatible with those kind of wider objectives, then, you know, we, we will certainly promote it and, 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 you know, and we do across a wider range of activities. I suppose one of the problems is that um, if, if you have a particularly aggressive coal target in any area for conservation purposes, the, the methods often need to be employed, whether that be um, exemptions from the Deer Act to, to use lamping at night, or in the case of John Muir Trust, at one stage they were they were culling stags when they didn't feel they had the resources to necessarily extract the carcasses afterwards they were being left on the hillside. That's all things that, from a sporting hunter point of view, would be seen as as deeply unethical. And I'm not I'm not knocking the reasons for doing it. I'm just yeah. saying that yeah. it's, it's it's not aligned with a sport sporting hunter's approach. As a result of that, how big a role can sports hunting ever really play in that management mix, particularly when there is a forestry or a conservation purpose behind it? I think it depends on, on each local situation really and you have to kind of negotiate and, and work out what will work for a particular site. If, if deer need to be managed then there's no reason why a, a private individual can't do that and, and often do it more effectively and, and more cheaply. But there may be circumstances where either location or, or the requirements that we're looking for just you know, aren't, aren't easily compatible with that kind of sporting interest. So I don't think there's going to be one size fits all, but I think it's certainly open for discussion that you know, if, if there is a good mix and a, and a good opportunity, then, then we'll look for partnership ways of working. I think that takes us back to the conversation about um, this obsession with environment first. I think that the model should actually be not Scottish Natural Heritage but Sustainable Scotland which looks at those three pillars in parallel tandem. Because without that, without sustainable viable communities living in those areas, you're not going to get the environmental benefits that you hope for. You, the business case is not supportable, single species conservation is insupportable and you, it, it is not right to have areas in Scotland where you're looking at deer eradication You've got heather that's so high that the, the, the undercroft to that is sterile. That is not uh, sustainable. And I think the future for us really is having a conversation about getting more people, the right kind of people, back into those communities with um, local jobs and local places, and then local people, genuinely local people, having more access to natural resources in their area, be it hydro schemes, wild grouse, deer, fish, whatever. I think it's a conversation that we need to have. So this obsessive focus on the environment first, I think it's dysfunctional and I think it's time to change that and start thinking about the bigger picture. Richard? Um, yes, I would, well just quickly to comment on what Alex said with which I totally agree. Um, I think actually we're not quite as obsessive or, or uh, about the environment at uh, to the ex exclusion of everything else as we used to be, but we, it is still always first in the queue. I mean, uh, technically it is where you've got a designated site, but actually it tends to be the lead 
interest everywhere. And I, I do agree with Alex that we need a more balanced approach. Um, I think the other thing is that we all follow our particular interests obsessively, as, as he said, quite, quite the right word, to the exclusion of all others. And actually, there is a great deal of common ground. And if we could, if we could establish a consensus, a national consensus, as to what the common ground is and what we're actually trying to, to achieve, where we're trying to get to. Are we looking for a rewilding model where the wolf and bear run free? Or are we looking at a place that provides at least the levels of employment today, or better still, more? Um, well, somewhere in the middle, probably. But, uh, and there has to be a little bit of room for everything. But we, we really need to know what we're trying to achieve because everybody at the moment is, is, is pursuing their own interests to the exclusion of all others. And just to relate that briefly to your uh, question with Eileen about individual deer groups where one member of a group has, has a model where they require five per square kilometre and they're not prepared to put up fences and another has a population requirement of 10 or 12 per square kilometre for sporting purposes, those aren't necessarily incompatible, although the, um, the, the deer population is highly mobile and will go where the best shelter and feed is, so if you're regenerating woodland, that's where they like to be on a snowy night. Um, it's really all about doing it in a respectful, neighbourly manner within a deer management plan so that everybody understands what everybody else is trying to achieve and there's a, a degree of, of <coughs> compromise and negotiation which means that everybody gets more or less what they want out of it in, as I said, a respectful way, which is because a lot of the bad examples, which I mean, you referred to a couple of them, have been just because people have done exactly what they want, because it's a voluntary principle, without any consideration of the impact on others. Now, that really shouldn't be done that way, and I don't think it will be in future very much, because we've come out of that tunnel, but um, there's a long way to go before um, we can um, we can say we've uh, we we can forget about deer being um, uh, the number one uh, species in Scotland in iconic terms, but also a lot of other people's not, uh, public enemy number one. I mean, I would echo very much what Richard said. I mean, deer are a very iconic species, and they are often the the most highly kind of um, supported and most popular animal in Scotland. But they are also the animal that most people are concerned about as well so they have that you know dual kind of challenge of everybody likes them but they also do cause problems and it isn't just environmental problems you know there's lions disease there's road traffic accidents so it is about trying to get people together in in deer management groups or you know through other structures to work out in a particular area what is the balance of objectives that's right there and there are private individuals that have very um, different you know uh, needs and wants as well as you know uh, NGOs and, and communities so it does require that conversation and, and local solutions to be arrived at and and I think you can get that balance but I think the environment does drive so much of what Scotland markets itself on that you know we can't ignore that and we can't just think that that can be put aside and the economic and social aspects will ar arrive because I think we, we do collectively depend on it for all of our kind of industries and, and to promote you know Scotland as such a fantastic venue to come and do countryside sport so it's kind of we've got to kind of make sure we don't kill golden goose by you know making sure we, we think about that long term. I think it's one of those things if you want to uh, have a, a, a pleasant dinner party you never discuss religion politics or deer management. Um, <laughs> One thing, when I, when I was doing a bit of research about this, one of the organisations I was quite keen to get along was um, Forest Enterprise Scotland, and which I couldn't get anyone. But do, you know, their websites, they produce a lot of quite, quite detailed information 
Um, and, and looking at it, they obviously, for, for very legitimate reasons, they have to do very large culls to get out about 30,000 deer a year. Um, and if you troll through the website, eventually you get to some information about uh, sports stalking. So they have 550 recreational stalkers on each year, and a lot of that is on leased grounds. Um, and they do have a company stalking um, that said in 2012 they offered 27 stag weeks, 7 robot weeks, and 6 doe hind weeks. Now, the question I would put, um, probably more to what was it, Aileen, is if you, if you go to their website, they promote all the uh, amenity activities you can do on their website. There's about 16 different no noted. There's fishing, but you have to troll through a lot of different screens to eventually find any meaty, meaty um, information. Within the actual amenity section of their policies and on their, their list of, of where you can actually do sports, they don't mention any of this stalking. Is it a case that the public sector is slightly hamstrung by political correctness on the subject? It's an interesting question and I, I, I won't speak on behalf of Forest Enterprise because I, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly we don't feel hamstrung by that. I mean, I think we have quite publicly supported ADMG, Scottish Venison Partnership, um, Basque, we work in partnership with um, Game and Wildlife Trust and, and, you know, through Scotland's Natural Larder and so on, we are quite publicly supporting um, field sports and, and I don't think we've ever felt that's a conflict um, and, and certainly, you know, the discussions that we've had with our you know, senior staff, board, etc. Our, our colleagues are really quite comfortable with it because we see it as such an important aspect of, of life in Scotland and, and you know, it is, it, particularly in rural areas, it drives a whole uh, range of community and rural benefits. So uh, personally, I, I, I've not seen it being an issue, but I can't speak for Forest Enterprise. Um, for, forest Enterprise, um, um, Trying to keep the bars, <laughs> keep the bars between myself and Bob McIntosh, although I'm not going to say anything to upset him. Um, um, have played a hugely important role in deer management. You, it needs to be remembered that their uh, primary function used to be their only function, uh, for which we as taxpayers fund them, is to grow timber for strategic and other purposes. And so they have a different attitude, quite rightly, to deer. They're a threat rather than an opportunity. But they do make very good use of their opportunities, um, and they um, they have their own staff who are managing deer. They have professional contractors who are managing deer to some extent. But they do make quite a lot of their land available on medium-term permissions, as they call them, um, for renting. And they, they set a high standard; it's minimum level DSC2, which is fair enough. And um, I think that model's really pretty good. They set a standard of professionalism that has raised the game of the whole sector. And, and they have invested heavily in the sector, they contribute to a lot of our projects, they contribute to individual deer groups, and um, I think we would be very much the poorer if they didn't have that um, approach to deer management. I do think, and it's quite a big subject in the lowlands, that Forest Enterprise could make more land available to local community stalkers, of the people, the people I was talking about earlier, um, but not just Forest Commission and Forest Enterprise, but also the local authorities who have a lot of land that they don't even they don't even know they've got deer on them, but of course they have. So I think there is a there is a, a gap to close in the lowlands, particularly um, between uh, local capacity, most mostly voluntary and um, recreational, and a job of work that needs to be done. It needs to be obviously structured in a way that meets um, 
compliance standards for a public agency, but I'm, I don't think that's beyond the wit of man, and I, I would like to think that's something that will emerge over the next two to three years. Byron? Richard brought up the point earlier that uh, a lot of people won't realise the great work that is done, particularly on the low grounds because of the nature of the ownership of land there by recreational stalkers. There is a, a massive network of recreational stalkers who do a really fantastic job and have done really without anyone uh, really sort of standing up and saying, look what I do, because they just get on with it and that, that falls under the, the, the deer management groups. Uh, so they, they, know, they know what's going on as a whole, but it, it is something that's definitely worth pointing out that there are a lot of people doing a lot of great work, but they're doing it as part of their, their recreation and it fits into a greater management plan. Uh, I'd also just say that with regard to increasing um, the sort of availability of hunting to local communities and local people, one of the really important spin-offs of that will be the greater engagement that you get you will increase the opportunities for people to enter into it who may have not come from a background where it was accessible to them. And once you can start that sort of chain of events and you've got more people coming back, more people bringing venison uh, back into their home, more people bringing back other wild game back into their home and sharing that amongst their friends, it helps bring back that connection with our food uh, with our environment, with our wild resources, with the wild others that we have as a society generally lost. And that can only be a good thing. Richard, if I could just pick up on a point that, that you made, you were talking about um, the Forestry Commission and obviously it's a government body and they have, their primary function is forestry and uh, to get an economic return on that, I think everyone accepts that heavy culling is a necessary part of that on their own published data that they um, spend around four million pounds a year on culling uh, and their own website sort of, uh, expresses the economic value of recreational stalking. So they talk about the scheme where they work in conjunction with Basque on Aaron. Um, the figure they use was 45,000 pounds per annum going directly to local businesses. Um, and they state that, it, it, that the recreational sporting helps offset their deer management costs. Do you think there's an argument, an economic argument, that really it's public value for money um, that should be driving more recreational sporting on public ground as well? Well, I think it probably is public value for money and they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't spend the money on deer management rather than just culling because it's also fence maintenance and replacement as well, which is a, uh, arguably a capital cost. Um, uh, I think that there is value, they wouldn't do it because um, the, the benefit is in the tree, timber production and all the other goods, including recreation in particular, which um, Forest Enterprise produce. So um, it's frequently held up as a, criti a criticism of those who support the, the maintenance of the deer sector in something like its present form, is that the, na the nation forks out a huge amount of money just to keep the numbers down in, in, in on government land. Um, it's really not as simple as that and one's very often told about the cost of deer fencing, but in almost all cases those deer fences would, would be needed as stock fences, even if, the, even if there were no more deer. Because uh, to Just to give the context, I think it's about 1.5 million annually, FES. Yes. Well, they've spent a lot more money on fencing over recent years, and they now have a different approach where one's looking at restock situations to what used to be done, whereas they don't fence individual planting areas, they fence a perimeter. And, um, deal with the deer that are inside the perimeter and keep them at a level which is which where damage levels to the trees is tolerable under 10% or 10% is the target I think 
Um, and that seems to me to be a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And because there's a fence, in, if the fence is maintained, it largely allows other types of deer management to continue out with the fence. So, um, you know, fencing has its place as government policy recognises. And it isn't necessarily a bad thing. And it, it also, one has to remember, is not forever, it's short term. Elena, a value for money argument? Um, I think it's an important consideration. I mean, you know, we are paid by the public purse. We have to do that. We have to manage our land in a way that's most kind of efficient. And, and you know, if we can do that by bringing in other people to do the deer management, then obviously that makes sense to do to do it. I mean, there'll be places where it's more or, or less easy to, to achieve, but I think certainly it's something that we would look closely at, and, and, and there is good arguments for doing that, absolutely. I think, just coming back to one of the other points about local authorities, um, I think there is a big challenge to get local authorities on board with this, and it's something we've been working on, trying to get local authorities um, to come to events to understand their responsibility um, to manage deer, and, and they kind of don't get it still, and they are very responsive to their perception of the public um, and, and so on, and so there's, a, there's quite a big education um, uh, there to be done, but you know, there is a responsibility, and, and there are huge opportunities on local authority land. I mean, we're, we're actually a relatively small landowner compared to Forest Enterprise or local authorities, but if you think about the capacity and the opportunity that could be out there if we could, you know, make inroads with that sector, um, but, but there is quite a sort of attitude change there, I think, that requires a bit of collective effort. Um, we're working on it, but certainly, you know, a long way to go, I think. Absolutely. Alex? It's been an interesting discussion to look at, say, Section 7 management scheme in regards to local authority area. Um, there's a lot of chat about private landowners and their responsibility to deer management, but as a wider pu public and a community, we need to look at those people that are not engaging, and uh, in some areas it's local authorities, so that's something for the future. Um, I'm quite excited by the formation of the new Scottish Land Commission. I don't really want to have a conversation about land reform and shooting rates and things, but a high-level conversation about the perceived inequity in, in land ownership in Scotland and, and the actual position here for um, trying to find a way forward for all of us and balance, I think that's fantastic. And that's a conversation I think we should all be having together with the, the commissioners in the future. And a point. I think there's a bit of time to open this up to the floor. Are there any questions at all from anyone? Peter. Well, very interesting event. Uh, I would love to ask Aileen Stewart if she filled in her shooting rates. <laughs> Have we filled in our shooting rates? Um, I, I can't answer that off the top of my head. I'm sure that we have done what's required. So I, I think it has been explored, but our land agents deal with that. So I don't have the data for you, but I'm sure we, we are covered by the same rules as everybody else. Uh, if I can bring in uh, Jules Stoddart. Hello. Um, we were talking about forestry. It was quite an interesting discussion um, that was going on there. I just wanted to highlight that um, I'm conscious I've got Bob McIntosh sitting next to me and don't want to speak out of turn, but the um, government consulted on the future of forestry in Scotland fairly recently. Um, that was a wide-ranging consultation and uh, in the SACS response, and I know a number of other field sports organisations said the same thing, we did make the point that um, there is an opportunity there for 
for public hunting and that it's not made enough of. And the Forestry Commission and Forest Enterprise is very good at providing angling opportunities in particular. Um, I know that as a former Forestry Commission land agent before I joined SACS. Um, but in terms of stalking, I feel still there, there's more that could be done and certainly with, um, with feathered game as well. But the Forestry Bill is now at stage one in the Scottish Parliament. I wondered um, what the panel's views were on the future, actually, of public sector land in Scotland. Uh, I don't know how much you know about the policy process and the changes that are currently uh, underway, but Eileen and I were discussing before the podcast started the ever-increasing budget cuts and the fact that the public sector is, is squeezed. From my previous work, I'm very familiar with budget squeezes and the impact that that has. Where is public land going in Scotland? Uh, I mean, it's quite a big question, so uh, I'm not sure I can give you a definitive answer there. I mean, it is a challenge for us. Um, the conversation we were having earlier was that a lot of the work that, that we are doing and engaging with the sector and supporting and promoting these kind of activities is um, work that we are really committed to. But you know, requires staff time. It requires you know that that, and, and also at the local level, you know, these kind of initiatives and, and the work that we're doing with some of the folk on on North Harris. It requires us to have staff on the ground and and to have people who are, you know have the skills and the capacity to um, work with local groups. And and that's quite difficult when you're increasingly coming under pressure because you know there is a potential just to draw back and and do the core areas of work which we have regulatory responsibility for and that I th we think that would be very unfortunate and we're trying to um, retain and, and keep our broad overview so we can support economic development, we can engage and, and there is quite a lot of um, also uh, a government interest in community empowerment and community engagement so there's kind of slightly conflicting pressures you know on the one hand they want us to do more of this and I think we all see the value of it but at the same time it's coming quite hard to do that with, with tighter budgets so I don't think there is an answer but I mean I think the in, in respect of the forestry bill there is aspects in that forestry bill which do give them or, or will give the you know the new body that uh, requirement to engage community support um, economic development and rural development so I think that's something that I would, would hope would remain and, and would still be a focus at, at the end of the day it will come down a lot of these things to, to government funding and, and steer from government but you know the, the tools are there and, and the willingness is there I think it's just trying to make sure that we you know we have the resources to do it properly. Okay, do you have any other questions from the floor? Um, Richard Seaman, Goldsmiths. Um, thanks, Rory. Uh, I just had a couple of questions, really. One was for Toby, and excuse me for my ignorance on this one, but have you got um, Jack Snipe on, on Muck as well? We do have a number of Jack Snipe, yes. yes and did do. they increase in, the same, in, in, you know, in line with the same with the common? They have. There, there are there are certain areas where we find jack snipe. They, where where our main sort of snipe bogs are largely common snipe. We do occasionally get jack snipe in there, but generally speaking, we have uh, sort of separate areas of the island where the jack snipe are, and we tend to avoid them because it's pretty tricky, um, you know, to get the identification right. Um, we obviously warn all the guys before they start, um, and. To be fair, the guys that, that come to us just to shoot snipe are pretty purist snipe shooters and they know the difference. I think we'll always bin somebody, if you, if you if somebody, the phone rings and somebody asks about snipe shooting, 
and one of the first questions they ask is what what can we expect to shoot you know can we expect 20 a day can we expect 50 a day we just won't take those guys on and we generally tie the snipe in with the woodcock as well and, and they're you get a sort of um, yeah, a much sort of uh, guys aren't interested in how many shots they fire. That they're about they're about the day's sport, and if they come home with five birds or fifteen birds, they're they're as happy as you like. And those are the guys that know the difference, generally speaking, between the two. And they're the guys we try and target for those for those sorts of days. Thanks very much. The other question I had was for Gordon. Um, I think the the sort of whether it be a French or a North American or whatever model with a you know, wider participation with, with local communities is got a lot of merits. Um, but I was just going to ask Gordon, just out of interest, how much do the do, do your local members pay you know, to be a member of the Hind Club, and how do you manage? You know, has the Hind Club managed to achieve culls in recent years, uh, as anticipated, and how do you sort of? work on the basis that presumably everybody's looking for a sort of yelled skidding hind as opposed to you know the old hind who's uh, really needs to be taken taken out of the cohort uh, thanks for that question because that was an issue I, I felt I should have discussed earlier the club actually the members pay 10 pounds for each hind they take so it's just a small nominal fee that they pay to the trust that we receive but that's better than us having to pay somebody to go and do it um, so that's their membership fee of the club. On top of that, they pay a fee to the club to cover their insurance. So I think they're a joint membership of the Scottish Keepers Association. So they get their liability insurance through that as a club membership. So that's their, their fee. So it's about, I think they pay about £60 for that part of their membership and £10 a hand. So that covers their costs. As far as the kind of um, selectivity of the stalkers when they're going out on the hill, that is a problem, uh, and uh, that kind of non-discriminate side, and I'm sure that would apply to the kind of ideas you're looking at as well, Alex. How do we make sure that human nature doesn't take over, that they wander out, it's a horrible day, there's a lovely animal there, nice and fat, why don't I take that one for my freezer instead of walking miles to get the skinny one that I really should be taking? And especially that's a, that is a bigger problem in our case because at the same time as just trying to control deer numbers, we're still wanting to maintain a high quality deer herd because our clients or the clients that go down and see a castle state they want to take high quality stags so we do have to try and find a solution to that now what we've done so far is of course it's peer pressure as much as anything we know the guys that are going out on the hill and we make sure they report back to us so in that way we can say well, well that's not the kind of thing you should be taking mate because you know you got to think 10 years down the, down the line, this is our population of deer. If, if everybody starts doing that, it's all going to go pear-shaped, for want a better phrase. So really, that's how it's working at the moment. And, and as I said, the other part of it was, well, my role in keeping the data of all the animals that are taken. So that if they, if they see trends change in the population, we can say, well, that's because you're taking those animals instead of those animals. If there's suddenly a part of the hill that becomes bare of hinds, I'm keeping an eye on that. And next year, there'll be an exclusion zone on the hill to make sure that people are forced to go to certain areas. So it's not perfect. It's definitely not a perfect situation and it's open to criticism. But uh, I think overall, um, by keeping a close eye on it, sharing close eye on it and sharing information, we're doing reasonably well, uh, and I would say overall it does work. I think we've seen this at Sachs recently that 
one of the areas we do have uh, wild hunting in, in Scotland is on majority of the Crown foreshore. We've seen this with wildfowling clubs that um, it, it takes a lot of leadership to try and get often competing interests within the group. Um, and uh, I'm sure if you look at the European models of hunting circles where they'll have a lease on the ground, hunt the ground for about 10 years, that, um, that, uh, that that's enough time to give people a vested interest in proper herd management. But again, it comes down to strict, uh, uh, strict management and strong leadership within those groups. I, I think we're probably um, drawing to a close. Um, if, I'd like to thank all the speakers for today. I think we've had a, a, a vibrant discussion. It's uh, covered quite a lot of wide areas, but I think there's been a, a, a common theme to it all about community empowerment and really sort of make sure field sports and communities uh, objectives are aligned. And I think we've, we've shown some very varied examples of how that can be achieved. I can thank all my speakers uh, and this will be in on the Into the Wilderness podcast probably coming out in the next probably not month next or so. Month, yeah. yeah. So I would encourage you all to uh, um, uh, go and check that out. The, the link is there and uh, if I could ask you all to thank our speakers in the time honoured way. Thank you. And that's it for another week, I think, because we're going to be doing an interim show in between the between this and the other show. I was looking on iTunes the other day, and I found something out that if you are in the UK, you cannot see the reviews from other countries around the world because it, it's only related to the country you're in. And uh, some of our American guests, that I'm going to yeah, only American, no, no, no one from Canada have left some reviews. So thank you very much. And it's all been in the last two weeks. Yeah, really appreciate so it. So really appreciate it. Reaching over, across the pond. Over in the States. Thank you very much. So if the Canadians could do the same, please. That would be grand. Yeah. In fact, we've actually had at least one, possibly two or three emails from uh, over the water from our American listeners asking us a few things yeah. and saying that they enjoyed the show and we always appreciate those emails sometimes it takes us a, a week or so to get back yeah. to you if we're really busy because some of them are long really like, long really and long. I love those uh, but we do reply to everybody who emails even if it's just to say how's it yeah no thank you very much we we really do appreciate we got an invite actually to go to Whitetail Deer yeah we do in North uh, Upstate New, New, York. New, York. Yep. New York yeah Upstate New York I, 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 I don't know is it no, is it New York State? New York State. I'm not sure how it works. I'm really sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't list all the states in America. Yeah, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, but we are coming to the United States at some point. I'm yes, pre- I think yeah. we, we can actually... Yeah, we well, can this say. is going out next week, yeah. so we can say this. Um, our, you've probably heard us talk about the film that we made for film festivals, which was called In Search of Reverence. The trailer has been out on our social media for quite some time. And it uh, won the Glasgow Film Festival Best Trailer. It did indeed. Yeah. Uh, we premiered the full 12-minute film in Iwa in Germany, and it premiered in the UK uh, at the Northern Shooting Show. But it was just at those shows on a screen. Yeah. Um, it hasn't been uploaded online. And I'm sorry in a way because it's not going to be online now for a, a year. year. Because we are very privileged to have been picked for the hunting film tour, uh, which is going, I don't think it's, it's not every state in America, uh, uh, plus Canada, but it's a lot of states. It covers. And I think so, it covers a lot of the hunting, the big yeah, hunting the, states. Yeah, the main hunting states, but I think it also goes to the states in multiple places yes. because um, 
the people living in the United States will know, it is a big place. Yeah. So, uh, so that's absolutely awesome to be in picked. So thank you very much to the guys at the Hunting Film Tour. Uh, we'll probably mention it at the start of the next podcast as well, just in case you're nodding off. Uh, yeah. but go and see it and like Daryl says we're going to try and get across for one of the showings and as soon as we know which one it is we will let you all know so the most emails from one state is where we're going <laughs> yeah that's a, yeah, that's what we should do you we should, should do see so what... the mo- more invites we get for hunting <laughs> that will be the place that we go and currently upstate New York's winning so yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's it I think for another week yeah. Uh, don't forget to enter our competition to win uh, the 10th edition of the Hornady Reloading Manual uh, like Daryl said, it's going to be a picture competition. Check out our social media, Facebook and Instagram, for all of the info. You can enter through there. If you want to speak to us, visit the website, thepacebrothers.com. Yep, that's it. And don't forget, please share our show online, even if you just mention it. Say, hey, friends, listen to Do this it. show, because yeah. it really, really helps us spreading the world, the, the word across the world, uh, the good word of our word that's what we try and do yep we greatly appreciate it and, and uh, reviews, reviews, reviews reviews yeah reviews it really does help us massively we've got a large number from the UK now so if we could build up in the United States and Canada and anywhere else in the world is greatly appreciated as well we I know we've got a number of Aussie listeners and New Zealand listeners as well we have to say that you guys are pretty awesome at leaving reviews because if you look at an, a, other sort of comparable podcasts uh, you know a lot of which are really great as well they don't have the reviews that and we they have. don't have as much as us um so that's that's down to you guys so thank you so much for taking the time that's out why of your we day. give that's why we give you prizes yeah <laughs> thanks for taking the time out of your day to leave us reviews and actually i think they're all five i don't think there's anything other than a five-star review no there was one on was our one? there was was there one or not on itunes anyway i think they're all five star I'm not sure someone left a one-star review but uh, what was th- that? What, what no that nothing about? said i think it was either an anti-hunter or just someone that didn't like us uh, maybe. Oh, uh, well, it happens. Can't, can't please everyone. Yeah, can't please everyone. But that was ages ago. That's when we first started. Yeah. So almost all five star reviews. Ninety nine point nine percent. Yeah. yeah. So, I'm gonna go hundred percent because it doesn't count if you're just a. Uh, <laughs> if you don't leave a comment. If you don't leave a comment, and the yeah, reason, you got to justify. Why, you just, got to justify. Yeah. We don't. We like constructive criticism. Yeah, we had someone not too long ago giving us constructive criticism, and the constructive criticism basically consisted of that we shouldn't be the hosts of the show. So that's not constructive criticism. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it was on Facebook. Basically, we were boring and we shouldn't be the hosts of the show, but it's our show, so (laughs) it it, it wouldn't really work. (laughs) No, it definitely wouldn't work. Although, in the last two podcasts... By the way, this is is one person that that is the first time in, like, how long are we doing this now? Over a year. Well over a year Mm. now. Um, That must be longer than a year. It must be, because we're on, like, 50-something No, This is our second year. Are we in year two? Yeah, we're in year two. Halfway through year two. Yeah, so halfway through year two. So in that length of time, and that's the first negative uh, thing. And I think that person just had a chip on their shoulders. Maybe they couldn't grow a beard. That's probably what it is. And on that note, (laughs) we will leave you for a week. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. You just heard from Alex in this podcast. Thank you.